You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We see a man on his hands and knees with his son installing a floor because of plumbing and wiring up in the attic of the house. Almost every piece has to be cut to measure, but they've got to get it done soon before those boxes arrive. Those boxes that right now represented an income for his family. It would be hard to imagine that this man, three days before, had been president of the United States, engaged in 20 of the hardest days of his presidency. The machine is burping. This clunky telex machine, archaic machine now, designed to receive words or text from a dedicated telephone line. In this case, at the Treasury Department of the United States. The machine is burping. I can't believe it. Jimmy Carter, the President of the United States, said. He's not the only one following what's happening with this machine. Bankers at a dozen banks, numerous diplomatic officials of at least four countries are also very interested. How we're going to judge hundreds of days may come down to this machine. It is the bank instructions for the transfer of funds from the Iranian bank the assets to be provided after being unfrozen by the United States, which will trigger the Iranians to free the hostages, get them on a plane, and clear Iranian airspace. Everybody's watching this telex. But 30 minutes later, Bill Miller, the Treasury Secretary, calls Carter and says, The message is garbled. What? Garbled? Garbled? Yes, and they sent the wrong codes. It was 2.20 a.m., January 20th, 1981. There was but 10 hours left in the presidency of Jimmy Carter, and he had not slept for the last 36 hours. Whether he'd have an accomplishment or whether that accomplishment would go to the next president would come down to burping telexes, bankers not totally ready to put aside pecuniary interests, and negotiations with a government that hated him. We are number one. We are number one. Indeed, the hostage crisis that began in 1979 was not over as Jimmy Carter appeared with a We Are Number One t-shirt. 
final days at the Sugar Bowl, his own University of Georgia won. It continued through 1980 with a constant focus on the insult to America and the perceived fecklessness of President Jimmy Carter. Carter lost the presidency in November 1980. The Shah, who caused this entire crisis by entering the United States for medical treatment, passed away. But neither of these events changed the fact that 52 Americans were being held. No consistent statement at all from the Iranians. Stu Eisenstadt, Carter Aid says, we had no idea, no insight into their decision-making process. Even as 1980 turns to 1981, there's still clerks calling for a trial. January 1st becomes January 2nd, becomes January 3rd, becomes January 4th. And Carter's looking at his successor coming in. And all the news coverage is shifting to a new administration, the Reagan administration. Who's going to get what post? He still has to spend each of those 20 days prepared with a threat of war. For if Iran were to put the hostages on trial, any one of them, he will go to Congress for a declaration of war. Now the burping telex. President Carter had canceled a planned trip to Camp David on Sunday the 18th as news arrived that a deal and a hostage release could be close. Carter was up from Sunday morning. Every once in a while, Carter would put a log into the fireplace. Those rules about conserving energy still applied. Hamilton Jordan referred to the final deal as needing to be a perfectly executed pool shot. All the balls had to go into the pockets after bouncing off specific locations. Bank of America was clamoring about interest. They hadn't held the frozen money in any kind of interest-bearing account and didn't want to pay the interest. Bank of America and the other banks are trying to cheat the Iranians, in my judgment, Carter would say, because they didn't invest, as others did. The night before his presidency was to end, he asks Lloyd Cutler, his lawyer, he notices that he's coming in and out of the Oval with constant updates, little reports. Carter asked him to stay in the Oval Monday night, and he and the president laid out on sofas. They were like two kids in summer camp, Ham Jordan's thought. Jordan was there, too, for as long as he could stay awake. Cutler asked how Carter thought the new president Reagan would do. I hope he will do better than I fear he will, Carter said. Begin, Israel's prime minister, will test him early. Lifting the grain embargo will send the Soviets the wrong message. The irony of Carter now worrying about Reagan being seen as not tough enough on the Soviets, as would be made clear in comments he'd make later in this year, accusing his former rival of being too tough, of a militant policy. Cutler asked Carter how he thought Walter Mondale would do running in 1984. Already seemed clear that Carter wasn't interested in running again. It won't be easy for Fritz, Carter said. His association with me will hurt him with some groups. Hamilton Jordan remembered Carter saying, I couldn't do this again. Earlier in the week, he had hoped that he would be in Germany, greeting the hostages returned still as president. They had some talk on Monday. Perhaps the British could lend them the supersonic Concorde so he could get out there quickly. There was some talk of de-skip Reagan's inaugural and just go to Germany and meet the hostages. Carter won't do it. It would look horrible. No, he will stay in the Oval till the last minute.
Cyrus Vance, former Secretary of State, is now waiting at Andrews Air Force Base for that signal to fly to Germany, hopefully within the Carter administration. These hostages will leave the airspace of Iran. It isn't just about legacy, although it's certainly about it in some form, but not just about it. Carter is worried if the deal is not completed between the United States and Iran, now using Algerians as an intermediary. Before noon Tuesday, Reagan is president. He might say something. It might scuttle the deal. At Christmas time, Reagan had made a statement calling the Iranians barbarians, saying he wouldn't pay ransom, even though many in the Carter administration secretly cheered on Reagan for making the statement. Carter's worried that he might say something now to scuttle the deal, or the Iranians, absent a Carter administration to negotiate with, might start the whole process over, leading to more captivity for the Americans. In reality, Reagan has indicated he'll keep Carter's team, Warren Christopher in particular, as employees, the ones that are negotiating in Algiers for as long as necessary to complete this deal, and he makes no other statement about the deal to release the hostages. There is a brief interlude where the Vice President Mondale visits and they trade gifts. Mondale gives Carter a new globe. Carter gives him a rifle. You have always treated me well, Mondale says. You've always taken me seriously. It's a little known, and maybe not the most important thing in the world, but the relationship between president and vice president under Carter and Mondale changes completely. Mondale is the first to get a West Wing office. Mondale is consulted constantly. This is not normal for vice presidents. Outside of a little disagreement over the Malay speech, over certain appointments, Joe Califano, for instance, for, for Hugh's secretary, there isn't much difference between these two individuals. They act as a team, and it will be the model for people like Clinton and Gore and Bush and Cheney. It's the new type of vice president. But Carter doesn't have a lot of time for gifts. When there was a brief little toast of the cabinet members, Carter spent most of the time looking down at the table. Everyone knew he was thinking about the hostage deal. As Cutler and Carter sit on the sofas, presidential friend Charles Kerbo comes in to swap a story while they wait. He talks about he, how he was the lawyer that back in the 60s argued Jimmy Carter's case of election fraud in Georgia, where he feels illegal votes were stuffed in the ballot box against him. And the judge, future Attorney General Griffin Bell, ruled that those ballots be thrown out. And Carter got his seat in the state Senate. And then the governorship, then the presidency. If I hadn't won, Mr. President, we wouldn't be in this mess. There's some laughter. Carter says he regrets certain things, like, for instance, not appointing a woman to the Supreme Court. Another thing, they'll be left probably for his successor. Do you realize I'm one of the few presidents who hasn't got to appoint a Supreme Court justice? We appointed more women to the bench than all presidents combined. Bill Miller at Treasury calls. It's the most important phone calls right now because right now it's about money. The telex at the department is a quick walk from the White House and everybody's interested in it. The message is moving, Miller says. The telex from the Iranian bank is coming across with those instructions. Money is moving. That's the signal. That's money. And this is interesting moment as all of these world bankers and diplomats are listening for this telex signal when they realize it's simply a carriage return. It's a check. 
Um, the Iranians are making sure the Telex machine oh, works. You can ignore that message. Oh, that message. Bill Miller explains how the message from the Iranians was to have two identifier keys at each end, one at the beginning, one at the end. The one at the beginning is wrong, Bill Miller says. But if the one at the end is right, we will accept the message. A moment passes. The key at the end is right, Miller tells the president. Use the garbled message. We can correct later, Carter says. Garbled messages aren't the only problem. Now Warren Christopher, negotiating in Algiers, says that there's a problem. It's got nothing to do with the Iranians. There's a difference between Treasury and the Federal Reserve about escrow language. Language in the escrow agreement for frozen funds. Treasury says the language is accurate and it works. The Fed says it is not. I agree with Treasury, Carter says. Let's move. Carter, though he commands the federal government, cannot command the Federal Reserve. It's independent. Yet, Treasury forwards Carter's response as if it's an order. At 3.16 a.m., money is moving from London. The Americans have opened up an account in the Bank of London just for this purpose, but there's no word from the Fed. Ask them for an update, Carter says. Throughout it all, Carter is driving action that otherwise might not happen, and word does arrive eventually. Federal Reserve attorneys in Algiers are refusing to sign the agreement. Not the Iranians here, not the Algerians, who are the in-betweens, but the Federal Reserve attorneys. That's a problem, though, and it'll be a problem for all those entities, because if there's no escrow agreement, if no monies are moved, if the Algerians can't verify for the Iranians, and the Algerians aren't going to just take the Americans' word for it, the hostages will not be released. The lawyer in Algiers says he cannot respond to Carter's order. He works for the Fed. The Fed is headed up by Anthony Solomon in the Bank of New York. It's 3.50 a.m., but Carter calls him. Certainly, most in the Carter administration did not expect to be here right now doing this. Iranians given no indication that there was to be any change. Carter's attempt to rescue the hostages fails in April 1980, and American servicemen are killed in the operation called Desert One, now uh, Eagle Claw, but also known as Desert One. Now, that hurts Carter both in the primary against Ted Kennedy, who will have enough juice to take it to the convention and hurt him there, but it also hurts him in the election with Reagan. Ted Koppel was still, as he started on 1970, in 1979, on every night, counting off the days the hostages were in captivity. The 400th day, the 411th day, the 425th day, the 426th day of Americans in captivity. It remains tense. But there might have been some evidence that the benefit politically of holding hostages was running out, even in a place like Iran. One hostage was actually put on Iranian TV and interviewed by Red Cross and a future Iranian president, Khamenei, then a young cleric. His appearance, he was told later by everyday Iranians, was positive for their cause because he had very politely told the cleric in their language 
that this was cruel. This was wrong. But that's not the event that changed things, really. There's some in the Iranian government that would like better relations with countries in Europe, and this is making things difficult. But one event seems to really have moved things. Iraq, Iran's neighbor, led by Saddam Hussein and a secular government, invades the country of Iran. The reason is multiple. Those differences between the two countries went back to the government of the Shah. The Ayatollah Khomeini never stopped calling for a revolution in Iraq to match the one in Iran. And this made Saddam Hussein nervous. And they never agreed to hand over territories from a 1974 border settlement. Hussein probably also wanted territory became to become a Middle East power. And he saw how weak the Iranians is. They had purged 12,000 officers from the Iranian army for religious reasons. Because of the denial of American spare parts, they were having trouble keeping their tanks running. Meanwhile, Iraq had over $5 billion a month in royal revenues it could put into a war. He thought he could deal with this quickly. And in September 80, thousands of tanks cross the border and attack on a 400-mile front. They make immediate gains. The Iranians do fight back with greater force than the Iraqis expected with attack copers that provided by the United States back in the Shah days. And the Iranian Air Force is still in good shape. Iranians will end up sending people out in squads to attack Iraqi tanks. Amazingly, they're more successful than one might think. And it becomes a stalemate war. Iran needs money. Warren Christopher at the State Department became involved in negotiations after the election. Initially, the demands are ridiculous. The Iranians want the Shah's assets around the world, and that is, they estimate, $25 billion. It's later going to be found that it's about $25 million or less. They want $25 billion in gold given to them, or they won't release the hostages. The idle talk becomes real, though. By January 7th, Carter's writing in his diary. I'm beginning to think Khomeini wants to end this thing. Chris thinks he has something. Still, Carter lays out that they will negotiate, but will make a deadline of January 16th to stop negotiating. Dear President-elect Reagan. Carter sends new president-elect Ronald Reagan 28 memos. Very important president-elect. Of what to be aware of in foreign and domestic policy. But receives... No answer back. Reagan's team, it is clear, doesn't want to be part of decisions till he's in the White House. Jim Baker and Ham Jordan talk about a lunch, but it doesn't happen. When there's a question about whether Carter's government should sell the Saudis attack fighters, that would go against what Israel wants. Carter seeks Reagan's input before making a decision in the last month. Each time we pick up a telephone, we may not be aware of it, but we're doing business with the largest private corporation in the world, Ma Bell. Aside from everything that Carter has to deal with in these last days, his Justice Department is breaking up the major phone company, AT&T. The company says it's under attack from the government uh, and it mounts a defense at trial. The trial will only last one day, so eventually AT&T and the government will settle and AT&T will be broken up. Ma Bell just lost her children. What it means is that AT&T will retain AT&T Corporation, AT&T Long Lines, Bell Labs, Western Electric, and Baby Bell, which will operate the phone stores. 
but AT&T will lose New York Telephone, New Jersey Bell, and 20 other local operating companies across the nation. Carter also has to deal with a presidential commission, the President's Commission for a National Agenda for the 80s, a commission that he appointed in 1979. They come back in 1981 and say, yeah, we've noticed that people are moving from northeast cities to the southwest, to the Sun Belt, the south, the southwest. We should encourage this. Why have to support cities more at the federal government level? Encourage people through transportation vouchers, more highway funding. Encourage people to move to the south and southwest. Just follow that trend. On Carter this, is opposed to his own commission's suggestion on this. We can't give up on our cities. And mayors of cities, Ed Koch in New York, is violently against this. This is a dumb idea, he says. We have enough problems as it is. Mid-January hostage John Limpert is taken for a physical where a television is present. And he hears the announcer speak of an agreement between the U.S. and Iran. He allows himself to get his hopes up. But just a little. Indeed, it's gotten closer. It's gotten closer. The fantastic demand is eventually given up, and the Iranians settle more to they want a certain amount of assets. That's going to be decided to be about $8 billion unfrozen. So it's really giving Iran back its own money that was in the United States and some European countries. That the U.S. won't get involved domestically in Iran, as it had in the 1950s, at least a pledge of assurance there. And crucially, Right before Christmas, Carter adds something else that gets the negotiations unlocked. All claims against Iran, public, private, in the United States, will be null and void. It's a decision that's going to anger even some of those 52 hostages. But it gets things moving fast. January 13th, 1981, the Swiss say the hostages will be released by Friday. I take it with a grain of salt, Carter says. Each day that passed, there was hope that there would be a final agreement to get the hostages cleared into the air base in Germany. Now it's 3.16 a.m. The Iranians have this point, at least in their statement, said there was nothing holding up the deal except the Americans can deliver. Federal Reserve attorneys and elders are now refusing to sign the document there. Carter calls Tony Solomon the head of the New York Fed. At 3.50 a.m., January 20th, he is put on the line for what he calls an unbelievable argument between the New York and Algiers lawyers. lawyers. After being badgered, the Federal Reserve lawyer in Algiers says he's fainting and cannot, will not sign the document, and will not discuss it any further. Carter calls Solomon. Tony. Get him to sign. On other front, there's some good news, though. The 12 private banks have sent their money. But the Algerians will need to show $7.977 billion of verified funds in the bank at the Bank of England. Tony Solomon calls Carter. They've revived that banker in Algiers. His stalling wasn't real. Surprise, surprise. But reflected differences between the Fed lawyers and Fed management. They would need minor changes in that escrow agreement in order to sign. Write it up fast, Carter says. In eight hours, there will be a new president. president. 
Carter hears snoring. It's Hamilton Jordan. He gets a kick out of it. Later, he'll wake Hamilton Jordan up and blame him for ruining the entire deal. We couldn't hear the telex over your snoring. You ruined the whole thing, Ham. One of the Ram moments of humor. Here's Mark Bowden and guests of the Ayatollah. There was bizarre-style haggling occurring behind the scenes. Although he'd rendered a final offer weeks before in late December, Carter makes that other proposal. All claims by American institutions and companies against Iran will be canceled. Sedco, DuPont, Xerox had some $3 billion in claims at world courts against Iran. But there's another key. Iran can save some face by not having to deal with Carter. They just have to deal with the Algerians. And Algerians want to be seen as players on the world stage. Their only request, the hostages are loaded on Algerian planes and stop in Algiers first. For the Iranians, this is a benefit. They don't have to hand over anything to the United States, just to Algiers. The head of the Majlis Negotiating Committee, Bazad Nabavi, his word is out, no interference with Iran domestically. Return frozen assets, freeze the Shah's assets in the United States, nullify the lawsuits, and we're in. Carter had been up all night in the Oval Office, its walls stripped bare, and the outgoing president's papers in boxes being removed. Twenty vans heading down to Georgia with the presidential papers. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Indeed. On the day of the 19th, hostage John Limbert notes that the guards there have told him and told everyone to expect to be released on the 19th. But it got more anxious in the so-called guest house 
when hours pass. It gets dark and nothing happens. Limbert is convinced that this deal fell through. They had been at different ends, some of them beaten physically. They had been tortured mentally through trauma, certainly. Inaccurate news stories passed to them about family members being dead. Anything they could do to mess with their minds. 444 days of mental torture is the way one hostage would end up describing it. Much more than Carter or most Americans even knew. They're being told, for instance, by their captors, Carter doesn't care about you. The Americans don't care about you. So this news of we're going to get on a plane, no, we're not getting on a plane, doesn't surprise them much. But Carter did care. In fact, he spent almost all of 1980 and his 20 last days of 1981 caring about little else. If the subject wasn't hostages, Carter wasn't as interested. He would later admit he didn't prepare adequately for his re-election at all. And now Warren Christopher calls back. He's in Algiers with the Algerians and the Fed lawyers. There's a problem. The Fed lawyer in Algiers made those minor adjustments. Treasury agreed to them, but now the Algerians can't accept adjustments to the escrow agreement. Why not? The Algerians will not accept adjustments unless Iran, who they're communicating with and they're responsible to verifying with, approves those changes. That will take forever, Carter knows. No, no. He tells his lawyer, Lord Lloyd Cutler, get all of these lawyers, Fed, Treasury, all on the same phone line. Carter's not a lawyer, but he grasps. We can use the combination of all the previously written instructions, the understandings that we had from all of the meetings over the last month, the existing escrow agreement, even if it's not perfect, and the garbled telex. Together, they form an instruction of what to do. In 20 minutes, Carter is able to convince all to follow this path. Sign it, New York Fed Chair Tony Solomon tells the group. Ten minutes later, Bill Miller calls from Treasury. The machine is burping again. Money is moving. Good news. In two seconds, money goes from the New York Fed to the Bank of London. Carter asks Bill Miller, the Treasury Secretary, to send a certification to the Algerians. There are six and a half more hours in Carter's presidency. Word arrives now that in Tehran, the airport has lined up Flight 133. The tower has called for 133 to line up on the runway. It's one flight number, but there's three planes. The 727 with the hostages, an exact 727 as a decoy plane, and a plane carrying the Algerian and the Swiss in-betweens. We must remember Iran is at war right now, and it has some concern of Iraqi fighter jets. While in Iranian airspace, the flight will go with an Iranian fighter escort. At 6.35, operations, read CIA. At the same time, the lawyers have resolved their differences. All of the escorts are signed. Fed lawyers, though, caused an hour and a half delay. The Bank of England certifies on a telex that it has received the $7.977 billion. Carter attempts now to call President-elect Reagan. Word comes back. The president-elect would prefer not to be disturbed. Carter will call later. 7.15. The telexes check off the amounts from each bank as received. 7.30. 
There's still no certification from the Bank of England that the amounts have been received. This is a critical piece. The Algerians won't move without it. Please push them, Carter says. Cyrus Vance still waits, ready to go greet the hostages. A barber comes in for President Carter. His hair is cut. Well, he remains on the telephone, hearing what little updated information he can. Iranian fighter escorts and runway action. Dollars and cents. This is not a funeral, Carter said to reporters at his last Sunday school at First Baptist Church. He had done Bible study on the regular on Sundays. We aren't dead. The sermon that he got, the lesson, was from Luke about service. What is greatness, Carter says? Being an emperor? Being a president of the United States? Carter told anyone who would hear it that he was going to be just fine returning home to Plains. Ham, he told Hamilton Jordan, do you realize for 15 years I've had to worry about other people's problems? As governor of Georgia, as a candidate, it will be an enormous relief. Hamilton wasn't clear if he bought it. Carter kept saying this type of things all through the month of January 1981. I'll be fine. It'll give me time to work on my memoirs. I'm worried about Rosalind, but I'll be fine. Reporters who asked him about Reagan found him concerned. I don't know if he could pass his tax cut, but I know he wants to. For Carter's part, on tax cuts, for the 20 days he would have in 1981, he would have to draw the line. He didn't want Democrats who were looking to maybe outflank Reagan cutting taxes. He let it be clear he would veto it. It would increase inflation and ruin the deficit. He was right about one of the two in the future. But it is useful to note that Carter's insistence on a connection between deficit and inflation is something, in effect, proven wrong during the Reagan years, uh, maybe inadvertently, where inflation went down as deficits went up. But it was an ironclad belief from a lot of people and markets at the time that Carter's president. Carter's job, or any president's job, is never over as long as they're in the Oval. This was true of Carter's final months. Two Americans are shot and killed in San Salvador, El Salvador right in the middle of a restaurant in a Sheraton hotel as they breakfast with labor activists. The State Department urged President Jose Napoleon Duarte to investigate. Duarte knew it was the work of right-wing paramilitary. Paramilitary had been plaguing the country, looking for even a more hardline government than his own. A young reporter from Bogota, New Jersey, his first day in El Salvador, is taken from his hotel room and disappeared. He was to write an article for Forbes magazine. It wouldn't be till three years later that he would his body would be found. Even the ambassador, Carter's ambassador to El Salvador, was receiving menacing hints and threats 
from those in the elite in San Salvador that these militias could do their bidding. He'd better watch how hard a line the Americans had. But the Cold War is the Cold War. And the communist FMLN declares war on the El Salvadoran government. Duarte's government could not crumble, the Pentagon and the CIA argue. Carter, however reluctantly, approves $5 million in aid. Carter will also protect Alaska wildlife in his last days in office, institute tariffs on foreign steel, change the Civil Service Reform Act to be friendlier to African Americans and Hispanics, consider sending fighter jets to Saudi Arabia all in his last weeks, his Department of Education, a a department that he created during his presidency, will force the states of Missouri, Kentucky, Ohio, and Texas to integrate their state colleges. While segregation is illegal in all of these states and across the country in 1981, these schools are still not integrated in large numbers. Do it, they say, or lose funds. For Texas, this nearly leads to a shutdown of colleges in the state. They submit a voluntary plan that passes Department of Education muster. No rest for the weary. 7.55 a.m., Carter's finished with his haircut. 20 minutes later, at 8.04, just four hours left in Carter's presidency, the Bank of England certifies by telex. Two minutes later, the Algerians certify they have received the certification by telex. 12 minutes later, the Algerians notify Iran by telex and by phone. Reminding the Iranians that the agreement is that when the money is received and verified, they should immediately bring about the departure of the hostages. Carter speaks briefly to Reagan, informs him of the developments. There's cheers in the Oval Office. Planes are on the runway ready to take off. The hostages are in them. From tower control, an Iranian fighter has lined up next to Flight 133. A jeep is checking the runway. But an hour passes. By nine o'clock, Jimmy Carter expresses for the first time, possibly, the Iranians are stalling to embarrass him one more time. Deputy Secretary of State Warren Christopher insists that this won't happen. The Algerians he spoke to, they spoke to the Iranians. While takeoff is not imminent, They do agree to do it before noon. They have agreement. But Iran, citing fear of Iraq or other disruptions, asks Algiers not to announce any departure time, not to give the Americans any future departure times. The hostages are indeed on the plane, blindfolded. A Swiss official does a check of each one of the 52, not only confirming their identities, but asks them about their health. In his view, his own exacting procedure might have delayed this flight at least some. Hostages, some of them, say they were on the runway and ready to go, but there had been so many mind games and torture, they had no idea. They are blindfolded when they're brought on the plane. Almost all sources, be it Reagan's team, Carter's team, Carter himself, Ham Jordan, journalists, worry about the hostage crisis but believe the obvious. Iranians wanted to wait for Carter to be out. Hostage accounts, for instance, note how aware they were of American politics, of American media, public opinion. But to date, no Iranian official has accepted responsibility for delaying that release. Rosalind Carter comes in, reminds Carter that he's meeting the Reagans. 
in 15 minutes. Time to put on my monkey suit, Carter says, at 10.45. But Carter still thinks it's possible. He has a personal aide accompany him with a radio. At this point, Reagan has formally asked Carter to go to Germany, no matter who's president, and to be his contact to receive the hostages. Very generous, Carter says. Smart, Ham Jordan said. People still like you, Mr. President. Reagan and Carter travel in the limousine to the Capitol building. Carter finds Reagan affable, but as Reagan tells stories about Hollywood, he doesn't get all the jokes and really is not in the right mindset to receive them. After the ride, he asks an aide. He talked about Jack Warner. Who is Jack Warner? Even when referenced, Reagan in his inaugural speech thanks Carter for one of the most seamless transitions ever. The camera pans to Carter. His distraction and lack of sleep is evident. As all of this is going on, as these ceremonies are unfolding, Heldon Jordan has not left his post in the White House. He keeps waiting for word on the hostages so that he can inform the president. It's afternoon. The appointment secretary has asked him to leave. At 12.25, he's still there, as in the office that he's in. Um, they're putting up portraits of Ronald Reagan and taking down the Carter portraits. At 12.25, he places a phone call to the White House Situation Room. And the same people that he's dealt with for four years, when he asks, can you please give me an update on the hostages? They said, I'm sorry, Mr. Jordan, we can't do that. That's when it really hits home for him. It is after the swearing-in and during the reception that Congress holds for the president in Capitol Hill that word is received. The plane has cleared Iranian airspace, headed for Algiers, and then headed for Germany. Despite having handed over the White House to someone else, nothing makes Carter happier. A bandstand was constructed in the main square of the tiny town of Plains, Georgia, so associated with its presidential resident. It was raining, but a crowd with umbrellas was still there, hundreds of people. As the band played Dixie, a song that Carter had forbid from being played during the campaign. Georgia was the only southern state that Jimmy Carter would carry in the 1980 election. The town of Plains had seen a boom of visitors and activity when Carter was nominated and even more when he was elected. In his first year, people were coming to see this town, to see the Carter Farm, to see the Carter Peanut Warehouse. There were plans for a hotel. The town didn't have one. The nearest one was in America's Georgia. The police went from a single man 
to an eight-person police force. But as Carter's popularity waned, the town of Plains had to get rid of some of those new officers, and the hotel hadn't yet been built. Carter's peanut warehouse, founded by his father Earl, was in trouble. And as they made this appearance, he already knew and had it on his mind that the warehouse was $1.2 million in debt. The business had been put in a blind trust that his friend and lawyer Charlie Kerbo was managing. Kerbo was no agricultural genius and in any case. The Carter years, it turned out, had been a very difficult time for farming in Georgia. After Reagan's election was certain, Kerbo gave Carter the news. The warehouse would have to be sold. The Carters didn't have enough assets to cover it. They owned a few stocks, not much. Farmland at a very cheap price. Uh, and a house worth $100,000. But the house couldn't be an asset because they would now have to live in it. In a four-bedroom ranch. Carter can't think about these things just yet. Because he has to leave from planes to Andrews Air Force Base, one more job as a former president now to meet the hostage at, at Wiesbaden as Reagan's special envoy. Although it's going to make Carter happy, it's more nerve-wracking than it seems. You know, this could be a problem, State Department official on the ground at Wiesbaden says. The hostages, it turns out, are people in trauma. We know much more about trauma than was popular at this time in 1981. They're going to be paraded around in, in motorcades like they're astronauts and things like that. These people have been mentally damaged, even the ones that had military training. The family of one Marine who thought he'd be fine because he'd been through so much, just see the condition that he's in after all of this time. But some of them have been kept in the dark. It's solitary confinement. Told that America didn't care. Carter didn't care. They're brought up the elevator after this warning to the holding room, a locker room that had been turned into a hospital ward. Tiny windows along the back wall. Sitting in three circles of folding chairs, there they were, the former hostages. Wearing baggy clothes, robes. One man wasn't expecting a visit. He's in his pajamas. Another's in a Penn State jersey. A few had decided they didn't want to see Carter at all. When Carter walks in, there's polite applause. Bruce Lanigan, who would have been the senior official among the hostages, introduces Carter. And he's going to go around and tell Carter the names of each person. It quickly becomes clear Lanigan does not have to. Carter knows each one of these people and the names of their family. He had had their families to the White House on the regular for updates. One man refuses a handshake. Ham Jordan's standing next to Carter and starts to get a little nervous. But it turns out he refused a handshake because he hugs Carter. Carter's not generally a hugger, Hamilton Jordan thought, but in this case, he did. Let me tell you, Carter makes real clear, there has been more prayers for you than at any time in the history of our country. He asked they have any questions for him. They did. Why did you try a rescue attempt? Carter said the Joint Chiefs of Staff said it was something that they could do. They didn't think they could do it at first, but as time passed, they thought they could. They got intelligence and they had the equipment. Why did you let the Shah into the United States? 
I had assurances from the Iranian civil authorities, Carter explains to the hostages, that nothing would happen. One of the hostages says, Mr. President, those were as good as the paper it was printed on. Rocky Shipman, one of the hostages, said that it became clear once we talked, you know, many people were upset. But I came around, um, and I came around to see that, as, that it was true what Carter said, that as president, you receive information and have to base decisions on what you're told. I will live with that decision for the rest of my life, Carter tells the hostages. Indeed, 1981 would be, according to family friends, a time of constant scenario checking, dreaming, what ifs. What if the Shah wasn't let in? What if we didn't order the rescue? What if, as Rosalind had insisted, we attacked Iran? What if I added one more helicopter to the rescue mission? Instead of an aborted mission in defeat, what if... Um, I won't get into it completely here. I have another podcast that talks about Desert One. It wasn't until I read Mark Bowden's book on this topic and some other sources that I realized that it wasn't as crazy as it seems. Now, it ends up in a, in a desert crash because of dust storms and, and everything, bad planning and things like that. But the Tehran operation is actually kind of plausible. The CIA had some turned, some people who were in the guest house who knew where the hostages were. Jimmy Carter, despite all of his statements about he's going to be fine in planes and everything like that, he'll describe it years later, this time, as being despondent. For the first time in my life, I had no particular goal. And a Navy officer, state senator, governor, candidate for president, president. Even people in planes say they don't see Jimmy Carter much. Chip Carter describes being so glad that the citizens of planes gave Carter as a gift a set of woodworking tools. Carter was endlessly down in the basement working on wood projects. Thank God, Chip Carter said, because he was in a pissy mood. There were many problems. You know, it, it looks like Archer Daniels Midland will buy Carter's peanut warehouse, but only for an amount that covers those debts. No additional profit. His former ambassador to Australia comes to visit. Ham Jordan is there too. Mr. President, you can sit on boards of companies. They'll, they'll pay a stipend. And really, you should go out and play golf. Meet CEOs. Ham Jordan's like almost holding his head in his hands. He can't imagine his former boss sipping juleps with mostly Republican CEOs when he gets the answer he expected from him. I have zero interest in sitting on boards of already successful companies. And I hate golf. It's not really exercise. Carter also makes the decision, which in his memoir he will regret later, to eschew speaking fees. He didn't like that Ford had done it. Clintons will make millions. Obama will make a decent amount on these fees. I'm not casting aspersions. I think, um, you know, there's probably a little... uh, foolishness that goes on with some of the fees. But I also do believe that, like, former presidents are people that the public wants to hear from. Fortunately, Carter had kept a diary during his entire presidency. He'd have to edit it. He'd have to put it into an interesting memoir, present it like a book, like a narrative. So people wouldn't want to just read a diary. That's what the publishers are telling him. 
Carter would spend those first months getting up early, breakfast, inspecting the property, and writing on his memoirs. The word processing equipment arrived in February 1981, much to Carter's delight. There would be a newspaper article describing this new $10,000 state-of-the-line word processor. I hope it's worth it, he said. You still had to hit the carriage return on each line. Bantam and Muir are interested in my memoir. But some bad news. He finds it's not only the Carter business in debt, so is the Democratic National Committee from his campaign. He'd have to raise $123,000 to pay off the campaign debt. Thankfully, to the rescue come Jimmy Buffett and Charlie Daniels. They'll do a fundraiser. There's talk of a presidential library at Emory University, but Carter doesn't like it. I don't want to be captured by any one university, thanks. I think our paper should be all around. In reality, it's much deeper. To him, it seems a bit of a chore, and a big library seems out of place. Jehan Sudat, the wife of Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, offers to come visit the United States. She'll arrive at Robbins Air Force Base, and Anwar Sadat, who's been a great friend, personal friend to Carter, says, can you arrange for transportation? Yes. Jimmy Carter in his pickup truck. Sudat will also visit planes and tell reporters there about Carter is not just a president he negotiated with, but a good friend. Now, Harry Kissinger, a little more cynical attitude, believes Sadat was a master negotiator, manipulator, you know, and it was like whatever the president he was negotiated wanted, you know, Nixon, oh, you're a brilliant, you know, strategist. Ford, you're such a person of goodwill. Carter, you're my friend. Reagan, you're a populist hero in your country. You know, whatever they wanted to hear, that's what Sadat did. But there seems to be a genuine connection. Uh, certainly, Carter felt it with Sadat. And there is a moment during the Camp David Accords where Sadat's just ready to go because he feels Israel's stalling too much. And Jimmy Carter just lays it on the line and says, you know, if the personal relationship means anything to you, then you'll stay. And something works. And Sadat stays and they end up working things out. Now, this gives the appearance that there's a lot going on in the early months of 1981. There's not even in planes. People are saying they barely see Carter. They say the best time to catch a glimpse of Jimmy Carter these days is in mid-morning. That's when he strolls from his highway home here to his nearby office. Along the way, he sometimes waves to camera-snapping tourists or stops to exchange greetings with the passerby. Hello, Mr. President. Good to see you. How are you? I'm fine. You shopping? Yes, sir. Groceries. Those who see him says the town's most notable resident is friendly and looks well. They report that he dresses in jeans, and his long-sleeved sports shirts are ever-pressed and impeccable. Sometimes he's trailed by an associate, too, and glum Secret Service agents secure every step of his route. Beyond this, though, no one right knows much about the 39th president retired, because other than the mid-morning appearance, he is scarcely available for wide viewing. Four months after being turned out of the White House, a most public place, Jimmy Carter is keeping to himself almost entirely. In fact, the truth is that he's become something of a recluse. He's got a lot of catching up to do, a neighbor says. It keeps him busy. Part of that catching up involves the Carter home, a gray house behind a fence west of the business district. Weiss says it deteriorated during the decade of neglect. The roof didn't fall in, but things generally went to pot. 
the Carters spent the winter and early spring redecorating and doing yard work. Carter and his son are going to have to fix the attic so it can support all of the presidential papers that he's received and the letters that he's about to receive. There's some 40,000 letters that he gets in the first few months. Carter recently visited the Lyndon Johnson Library in Texas and believes it's too big. There really isn't much politics in Carter's days anymore after 1981, but February 11th, Robert Strauss calls. Robert Strauss is the head of the Democratic National Committee. He was Carter's campaign manager in 1980. Uh, he's a Washington power broker. He wants Carter to know he still cares. He's still on his calendar. During the Carter presidency, Strauss is one of these bigwig people that would find out when Jimmy Carter was going to be in the office and then dial a few times and try to get him live. And when he got Carter, there was no particular agenda. He'd talk about the weather or talk about how busy Carter was or something like that, only to be able to say when he's out in Washington society, you know, I talked to the president yesterday. Now he calls again. Some people are saying, Jimmy, the Reagan team are making mistakes. Carter notes it in his diary without comment. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. On March 30th, 1981, Carter is informed by a Secret Service agent that he should turn on his TV. Roger, we want to go to the emergency room. 
George Washington. At the hospital, Reagan told his wife, Nancy. And he does to see the shocking news. There was an attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. When he hears the news that Reagan is going to the hospital to visit wounded press secretary James Brady, he's confused. He knows Secret Service procedure. On any attack, procedure would call for removing the president. It was hard to me to understand why he was going to a hospital. They said Reagan wasn't shot. It'll soon become clear that he was. Carter later hears that John Hinckley, the assassin of Reagan, had also been stopped in an airport in Nashville during Carter's presidency. He was stopped bringing guns onto a plane. Carter believes that he wasn't being stalked by Hinckley. That story has gained some currency in history. But uh, that the Secret Service said he was just coincidentally in the same airport. Carter calls the wife of Agent Tim McCarthy, who had been hurt in the gunfire. He knows the agent. To reporters, he expressed shock and horror at the crime. He asks for gun control legislation, but doesn't expect it. They didn't move after 1963. They didn't move after George Wallace, nor after Bobby Kennedy was killed. So I believe they ought to be regulated, handguns in particular. But I predict they won't be. What was Jimmy Carter? I don't know if he was naive or disingenuous. He sure wasn't running the government. Sipping on a tab, on a photo, one leg draped over the chair, Joseph Califano, Carter's former cabinet member, former Hugh Health Education Welfare Secretary, seems, the New York Times says, an cozy, informal man, attractively rumpled, attentive and approachable. It's time already to write the post-presidency memoirs of various officials, and Califano is the first significant one. The White House snipped at me for years. When that happens to Haig in the Reagan administration, Reagan gets right after it. Not so with me. He just let them go on. Jody Powell, Carter's former press secretary, would counter about Califano, Hell have no fury like a fat cat scorned. We were right about him all along, Hamilton Jordan would say. It wasn't the only former Carter people talking. Cyrus Vance, Potting Carter, uh, no relation to the president, but a State Department official, go after Zbig Brzezinski and said that he had too much influence on Carter. They talked too much, that he made his own policy. We had talked about in the Carter 1979 cast, something I don't think is widely known, how that uh, Brzezinski basically wanted to incite the Soviets to take the ball, to take the bait and uh, invade Afghanistan, things like that. Such as the way in a one-term presidency, people are going to try to assess the blame. Uh, rarely was there a complimentary article in the press over 1981. There were a lot of articles. But Mike Rosenberg is a senior legislative agent to Representative Jonathan Bingham, Democrat of New York, suggests that Carter run for Congress. Mr. Carter has the opportunity to break the pattern of normal presence and should so. He should as soon as possible run for office again. Specifically, he should run for election to the House of Representatives. As a member of the House, Mr. Carter would have a forum from which he could attempt to influence the national policy. Serving in Congress would not only give Mr. Carter the opportunity to influence events, 
but would help transform the presidency in the minds of the public. The presence of a former president in Congress would demonstrate that the president is a mere mortal and a politician at that. The public might learn to expect less of the incumbent and might be in less of a hurry to destroy him if he fails to deliver. Carter, as a, as a former president, is already making certain trips. He goes to China. He also receives the Prime Minister of Japan in planes. On his way to China, the plane stops for refueling in Alaska. He's actually told by the Secret Service, you are so unpopular here because of the carve-out of the Alaskan Wildlife Reserve and the perceived damage to the economy for that. You were so unpopular here, Mr. President, we advise you not to get out of the plane. He doesn't. Later, the economy of Alaska will will increase leaps and bounds despite that wildlife reserve. The wildlife reserve that Carter administration establishes will remain completely protected until 2017. In July of 1981, Jack Anderson, the well-known syndicated columnist, writes, There seems to be little doubt that Reagan is a man of good intentions, but Jimmy Carter was also a basically decent person. The difference is that Reagan, unlike Carter, has the skill and personality to translate his good intentions into practical action. Anderson writes, Some presidents have labored under the delusion that the election process itself, the single day of voting, transferred the people's power to them, but it doesn't work that way. As both Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon learned, to their sorrow, without the continuing support of the people, a president is largely powerless. This argument is one you're going to hear in a lot of places in 1981, because bad for Carter's reputation, the timing of everything, Reagan's going to have probably the best year of his presidency in his first year. Certainly in terms of passing legislation in Congress, he will. He gets his tax cut, Kemp Roth. Contemplative Carter in the Tulsa world, March 1981. He had to learn the hard way, but Jimmy Carter has come to the conclusion might have been more forceful with Iran. And he hadn't been as effective in the White House as he wanted to be. Students at Princeton University reported, after a closed-door talk by Carter, David Broder found Carter true to his principles in a January 1981 article. Jimmy Carter was a product of his time, a time of transition, as he said in his farewell address. An uneasy era. The nation was uneasy with his leadership and rejected his bid for a second term. It may be less a reflection on his shortcomings as president than evidence of the fitful spirit of the age. Whatever his failings, Broder writes, Carter was true to his own principles. He avoided military conflict. He protected land and resources. He spread the message of human rights. But he was unable to discipline the threatening forces in this transitional world. From the Corpus Christi Times, September 1981. Apparently refreshed and invigorated by his recent trip to the Far East, former President Jimmy Carter is ready to take up the political cudgel once again. For his own sake, we hope Jimmy Carter keeps his profile lowered. It might be galling to his spirit not to be president anymore. Jimmy Carter is, fairly or not, simply irrelevant. In the Hadesburg American, judging by the views of the American electorate, Jimmy Carter is not the forgotten man when it comes to speculation. With the off-year congressional elections less than a year away, debate has already begun over possible Democratic rivals for President Ronald Reagan in 1984. One question being asked is, does Jimmy Carter, the defeated 1980 candidate, continue to have voter appeal? 
The latest Gallup poll results answer this question in the affirmative. As high a proportion of registered voters today select Carter in a test election against Reagan as choose either Senator Edward Kennedy or former Vice President Walter Mondale. But Gallup doesn't show Carter winning a race. It's 54 for Reagan to 35% for Carter. My fellow Americans, I've said on several occasions that I wouldn't comment about the recent congressional hearings on the Iran-Contra matter until the hearings were over. I've just been talking about forces of potential destruction that mankind has developed. And I think you really have to break into that comparison a bit, because it's really what defines Carter's presidency is who came after. Reagan averages a Gallup rating historically over the time of his presidency of 52.8, where Carter is 45.5. Now that's seven points. But that 52.8% is lower than a great number of presidents, including his successor, George H.W. Bush, including Bill Clinton, including uh, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson. It's forgotten now Reagan had a terrible year in the next year, 1982, where he's going to have to claw back some of the tax cuts in the form of added fees and expand the deficit more. Promises made by Stockman and other members of his team are going to be seen in this year. He has a re-election in 84, and the economic increase between 82 and 84 looks good for a lot of voters. That belies the image of history a bit. There was heavy criticism of Reagan while he was in office. The Iran-Contra came darn near close to impeachment. The defense most commonly used is that he's an older man, he's not running for re-election, and he delegated too much to other people. Now, it wasn't a strong-willed, like, I'm remaining in office type defense. It was, well, he's Reagan. That's the way it is. I mean, that's largely Iran-Contra there. But many Democrats in Congress didn't vote for an impeachment because... They thought they'd get the presidency in 1988, and a few of them were running. I think when you see the larger Reagan presidency, and I did a 12-part series on it, it puts Carter into somewhat of a light there. It doesn't absolve him. There is an arrogance uh, that Jack Anderson notes about his time in office. It's a recipe of what not to do with Congress, in effect. On the other hand, he'll always argue, I I tackled problems. In 86, Carter's going to make a statement about Reagan. What significant problem has he tackled? This is before he gets involved in a serious way with uh, arms control. Jack Germond and Jules Whitcover. Democrats want no more Carters. It has become a cliche in this cold-hearted political town that former President Jimmy Carter has become the forgotten man in record time. But within his own Democratic Party, there is plenty of folks who haven't forgotten him and what his political impact was. The party's commission on national convention delegate selection, headed by Governor James Hunt of South Car- of North Carolina, of North Carolina, held its final regional fact-finding hearing and preliminary debate on a report here last weekend. And the bottom line seemed to be that whatever changes the party makes, it should see to it that it gets no more Jimmy Carter's for a long time. What does it mean? Not Jimmy Carter himself, who actually, if he decided to run in 1982, might do quite well under these hunt rules. But they're worried about a couple things. One, that somebody can win the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries as a nobody and become the leading candidate of the party. The other, 
and this is particularly among those who have an office, is that people who are holding an elected office can't spend as much time out there shaking hands in these little states than a type Jimmy Carter type person could as a retired governor. Plus, they want to add the contemplation and political knowledge of those who have won office before. Here's Alan Cranston, senator from California. Victory in a primary doesn't necessarily tell us whether a candidate can appeal to the larger constituency. Democrats of all our varied shades and opinions, and to moderate Republicans and independents, we have to appeal. These recommendations are going to lead to a word that is now not so well liked by people. Superdelegates. Elected officials, governors, other appointees who are going to have votes at the convention without representing a particular primary victory. The Corpus Christi Times did have it right. Carter comes out in October after a self-decided-on exile from politics and criticizes the Reagan administration on a few points. One is the deficit. The other is the hostile relationship with the Soviet Union, the, the fact that there's no interest in talking to the Soviet Union. Although Mr. Carter criticized Mr. Reagan's budget cuts as punishing to the poor, his harshest remarks dealt with three concerns, nuclear arms control, human rights, and the environment. Congress, he said, had succumbed to political pressure in making ill-advised cuts that hurt the poor, the sick, and the unemployed. Mr. Carter predicted the government revenues lost through federal income tax reductions would have to be made up at the local level with increases in highly regressive property taxes, and sales taxes. Mr. Carter said he was convinced that Soviet leaders want to stay at peace with us, though they will probe for every chance to exert their influence. Detente was the policy of the last three presidents and cannot be lightly abandoned, he said. Today, the people of the United States join with the people of Egypt and all those who long for a better world in mourning the death of Anwar Sadat. President Sadat was a courageous man whose vision and wisdom brought nations and people together. Carter would get one more official mission in the year of 1981. Sadat's assassination presented a problem for Reagan, and most of all, the Secret Service. Someone has to go to Egypt to represent the United States at the funeral of one of its greatest allies and an important figure in the Middle East, a partner of the Camp David Accords. But Sadat was killed by his own military, and there are Muslim fundamentalists operating against the government of Egypt at this time. Security situation is not well known. Reagan had just survived his own assassination attempt six months earlier. And they didn't want to put Vice President Bush into a foreign country right now either. So Secretary of State Haig's solution was, so if you can't send the president, you can't send the VP, just send everybody else you can. So Haig, Speaker of the House James Wright, former Secretary State Kissinger, Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger, the UM Ambassador Kirkpatrick, singer Stevie Wonder, and a 14-year-old boy from South Carolina who would become a pen pal with Anwar Sadat as well as generals, U.S. senators. It was quite a plain load. But he wanted to add one more thing. I want to express a heartfelt thanks 
to Presidents Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Mrs. Carter for undertaking this sad mission. All of the living former presidents would go. Of course, Carter, the most recent occupant, but also Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon. Their presence in Cairo will express to the Egyptian people the depth of America's grief and sorrow at the loss of a great leader and a beloved friend. Here's how Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy described it in their excellent The President's Club. There was nowhere to hide in this flight. The aging 707 was a thin, noisy, single-aisle plane with only a few not-very-private rooms. Haig took one of them. Nixon and Ford shared a cramped four-person compartment, along with Kissinger and Weinberger. And Carter and his wife Rosalind, who accompanied him, sat in a two-person area. It was a little awkward... Rosalind gets up and immediately starts talking to everyone and really goes right to Nixon. Let's just take the bull by the horns here. Uh, She's quite talkative and social, she finds. It's almost easier for Nixon and Carter to talk a bit than for Nixon and Ford. Relations are quite tough between these two former rivals. Nixon, Carter finds, is friendly He's going up and down the aisle of the plane with his blue sweater, his martini in hand. And he even knew how to duck when that photographer came around. Like, he knows. It's 1981. Nobody wants a picture of Watergate Dick Nixon. But eventually one of the stewards does ask, can the three presidents take a photograph? Carter's response is, how long is it going to take? Ford hears this and tells one of his aides, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken. Yeah, not cozy. They take the picture. They talked a bit on the flight. When they reached Cairo, an aide spoke later about how difficult it was. They had to keep saying, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, to three people. Then all of them get off, bulletproof vests donned, and go to the highly secured funeral on the outskirts of Cairo. The Egyptian military had done everything now to keep this out of the way. Begin of Israel is marching in the procession too, paying his respects. For Carter, there came the odd moment as he marched through the lines of armed soldiers. Weren't these the people that had killed Sadat? And they all have this moment where the funeral procession's marching and Egyptian soldiers, rifles not pointed at them but in ready position, block their path. Almost everyone reports being frozen in fear, but it's just a dress funeral procedure. And the soldiers, upon a command, break and allow the procession to pass to Sudat's coffin. On his coffin is written, Martyr of Peace. Martyr of Peace. It is said he wrote the epitaph himself. 21 guns fire. And as fast as they can, Carter and the former presidents are shuttled into limos and out of there. Now, though, there is an issue. The social, the Secret Service reports as they're getting back on the plane that Nixon won't be on the flight back. He just wanted to take the one out. He is going on a trip to Saudi Arabia. No one knows what for. Not even Kissinger. Haig tries to get Kissinger to find out he can't. Reagan people are miffed. They're disputing with Saudi Arabia right now over the special jet fighters. Those fighters, the, the AWACS, that Carter's administration was deciding whether to send or not. But that still hasn't been decided. Haig decides to stay in Egypt. Nixon's gone. Bulletproof vests off. Apparently, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter sit down 
and talk. Since we're two presidents, um, why don't we just keep it to Jerry and Jimmy? Absolutely. Reporters actually take a transcript. First, they talk about the Middle East. Carter sees the problem. No one, after the Sadat assassination, is going to step forward now and try to change things. Ford notes the same and notes that all the other countries in the Middle East, they're hypocritical. They want peace, too. They just don't want to come forward. They want someone else to do it. Ford and Carter talk about the Palestinians. Both agree this is the central issue. Until they look at the settlement, it has to The Palestinian the issue. They need to talk to the PLO. I'm not going to say a date. Um, Ford says, say when. Agree. I don't want to pick a date, but it has to happen. Someone simply got to stand up. That's right. Carter says Israel will never be assured a permanent peace until it does. It's a preview of what will be Carter's most controversial part of his post-presidency. Yet in a couple of years, Ford and Carter, in 1983, Ford and Carter will issue an op-ed in Reader's Digest, criticizing Israel on the settlements issue, the Palestinian issue, asking for a resolution. Ford makes a statement in which is prophetic in a way. I believe this example of President Carter, President Nixon, and myself is an excellent example of how former presidents can be brought back into service. The transcript of the Ford and Carter talk enters the newspapers. Reagan even needs to distance himself from it because of what they said about the Middle East. Carter would say later about it, One of the tasks we felt bound us was having to raise money for our presidential libraries. It's a lot harder, Jimmy, to get those dollars than it appears. Owners found the task of... The way that the Presidential Libraries Act, written in the 1950s, is drawn up is that Presidential papers should be stored in presidential libraries. I had visited the LBJ library. It's up to the president to raise money for the building. Beautiful building, but simply too big. A solution would come out of this talk on the plane. Carter asks Ford, would you come to Atlanta and participate in a symposium for me? Read Fundraiser. Not all the Atlantans with money abandoned the GOP when their former Governor Carter became the favorite in son and the president. Ford said yes, on one condition. Maybe you can come to Grand Rapids, Jimmy. Absolutely. That he would come to an event in Grand Rapids. And so both presidents raised money for each other's libraries, for Ford's current library and for Carter's future one. At some point, either in 1981 or 82, Carter wakes up from deep sleep. And tells Rosalind. I have it. I've finally figured out what to do with my library. We can start an adjacent institution. Something like Camp David. Where people can come. I can offer to serve as a mediator. No matter what the problems are around the world. We need to deal with with other people. people With mutual respect. We have to find a way to talk. talk. The Carter Center was built in 1986. Ford helped raise money for it. Ronald Reagan appeared at its opening.
1984, 30 people would get on a bus from America's Georgia to New York City. For a few days, they'd sleep in the basement of a church, and they'd work to rehabilitate housing for a person in need. The charity was an unknown Georgia charity called Habitat for Humanity. After that, Carter would dedicate at least once a year, sawing, hammering, putting up beams, and installing floors. Jimmy Carter would later tell a biographer, the totality of my life has been enhanced by my loss in 1980. 